0: Welcome back to the FBC Young Adults Podcast. My name is John Lemons. I'm the minister to young adults here at First Baptist Church in lovely Huntsville, Alabama. And I'm joined once again by Sam Maxwell. Sam is our ministry resident to young adults. And Sam, we are in season two of our podcast, and we're on a series that we are doing this season called Straight Out of Context. And we are on episode eight of that. Hopefully this is not the first time you've listened, but if it is, you can tune in to tune some of our previous versions on this uh, podcast episode or on this podcast series. Uh, Sam, mm-hmm. so glad to be here with you, man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So glad to be here. You know, this is the, I think the final uh, episode we have at least planned out for this. do oh, no, one, like t- one more. One more. Okay. Never yeah. mind. Scratch that. Uh, one more. Um, yeah, so it, it's been a great, great ride. And you mentioned beautiful Huntsville. Um, John, as we get closer and closer to summer, People are making summer plans. What are you looking forward to this year, especially that you either had to give up last year, or forego, or however else, or whatever else may have happened? 2020 put a wrench in everything. So, what are you, what are you looking forward to this year?
0: Yeah, um, normalcy. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> stuff like having having people over, having a cookout in the backyard. Um, you know, we had an outing planned last year for the Trash Pandas here in North Alabama, and mm-hmm. didn't get to do that. So we are we are doing that this summer. We, last year, we did uh, NAC, which is North Alabama Canoe and Kayak, and that was something that we did a few years ago and have sort of established as a a summer tradition. And of course, we did it last year, but it was still weird. It was lower key, Um, so that kind of thing I'm looking forward to. I have not seen my family in a while up in, Mm. in Northern Virginia, so being able to do that You know, I miss going to some things, there were some conferences that obviously got canceled last spring and summer and have been again this spring and summer, so I'm not really looking forward to that for this summer, Mm -hmm. but eventually like those kinds of things um, that just sort of Mm -hmm. mark the time, and mark the seasons, that will be nice to to be able to do that sort of thing again. So I think we're sort of making progress towards
1: that and uh, I'll take it. Yeah, no, certainly that, that rings going and seeing family rings for me and my wife. We are both not from Alabama. um, And I've been far from my family for a long time. And I think the last time we saw our families were right at the end of 2019. I think we had only been married two months for Christmas 2019. And then all of 2020 here by ourselves. So we're we're fixing to go see some folks. And I, I think that's really my highlight to go see... You know, small children, they grow up so quickly, and my sister has a couple of little kids, and they're gonna be massive by the time uh, I finally am able to see them again. So it's gonna feel like it was absolutely forever. But like you said, it will be nice to finally be able to see people again. You know, I had just gotten here in 2019, and my wife and I were going out and meeting different people in the ministry and around town, and it'll be nice to say, hey, do you wanna go and meet out somewhere for dinner? You've had your vaccinations, we've had ours. We've decreased the risk of any sort of issues and we can live happily and healthy uh, together. So let's go do some cool things. And even baseball, Um, you know, baseball has been on TV for a while. The Trash Pandas Stadium is a mile and a half from where we live. So it'll be nice to kind of have baseball in the air, a little bit of normalcy. So that'll be great. That'll be super exciting to do this summer. And as we start looking towards summer, uh, we'll also have a new series that we'll do, right? So we'll be finishing up Straight Outta Context, which we are doing now. And then we are planning and plotting our next series. It'll probably, what, a four-week series, just kind of talking about a a topic of our creation, um, but pretty excited about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one more week here, and then uh, we'll see if we do a wrap-up show. I don't know if we'll get any questions. We've we've talked previously, you know, if you're a listener out there and you have a question about a topic or a verse that we've covered so far in this series, or maybe there's a verse that's in your Bible that you're like, well, I don't really know what this means. Maybe Mm -hmm. Sam and John can talk about that. So We'd love to get three, four, or five questions from our listeners that we can answer. Uh, again, either about this or about something we haven't covered, and so we can do a wrap-up show of that for this this series, just to kind of you know tie everything up there. And then, yeah, like you said, dive into a you know four-week series on another topic altogether, and then take a break for mm. for a few months, and then probably come back around with something again in the fall.
1: Yeah, but before then, today's episode, we're going to be talking about John chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. It's the next installment of our Straight Out of Context. So, this is another one of those that you'll see plastered in lots of different places. John, I'm interested to hear some of the places you've seen it or how it's been used. But today's verse is starting in verse 13: And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for me anything in my name, and I will do it. Sounds pretty great.
0: Yeah. And I would say probably the places I've heard it most are in sort of prosperity gospel sorts of places, mm-hmm. um, or or people will say it to sort of denigrate the claims of scripture. People will say yeah. it to say that you know the Bible says ask for anything, and you know I didn't get this that or the other, or you know I asked for you know God to heal my family member and He didn't do it. So those are probably the places I hear it most often. Um, you know, taken taken out of the context that it's. That it's really in
1: yeah i you know we've kind of taken a somber note in some of these episodes to say when there's a tragedy don't use this scripture in the face of that tragedy and i think you're right when you said that you've heard it in the instance of someone not being healed or you know something along those lines this is not one of those times to say i'm sorry that your such and such has such and such and such, and blank blank happened um you don't want to say well i guess you didn't pray hard enough or do enough because mm-hmm. jesus said he'll do anything that we ask him to do mm-hmm. um, so just a, another reminder, just be willing to stand in the in the muck and the dirtiness of people suffering. But as we continue to talk about this topic, it kind of seems a little magical and mystical of sorts. Um a little a little magic lamp and genie-ish. So yeah. if you had a magic genie, John, and you had three wishes, what would you wish for?
0: Man, I have no idea. Um probably I mean, the Nationals
1: already won a World Series, so you could probably tick that one off, right?
0: Yeah, so that's a good point. And so I probably wish for um, you know. Another one of those, or if not that, then I'd be happy if just the Braves never won one again, ever. <laughs> um, so that would be good. Uh, probably, honestly, just security from an expenses standpoint. So you know, I'm at I'm at the stage where you know my I've got one girl in high school, one in middle school, and just a, a now a year and a half away from high school for my youngest one. So the idea of just college and mm. You know being able to do that without loans for them and them getting out and not having loan payments and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing that's probably you know if i could if that could just be a worry that I could eliminate from my yep. life uh then yes i would I would take that and then probably I would say you know if those if those are my two then my third one would be probably experiential of some sort so the the ability to experience whatever I wanted to experience so if it's you know if it means. Traveling places I've never been and wanted to go to, or you know, experiencing things like you know, hey, I want to, I want to see what the Super Bowl is like, or whatever. Mm. Um, that would be that would be the the third one, I think, for me. What about you?
1: Yeah, I, you know, you hit on something interesting. We've had the conversation before about student loans and how to pay for school. And my wife and I, we don't have kids, we don't have a family yet. Um, that is yet to be seen. Um, but it's still a question in the future. What do you What do you do about it? And with the increasing prices, how are how are normal. Uh, average Joe's like you and I who don't work normal people jobs, how are we ever going to afford that? Um, So I think that's a good one. And I think as we were sitting here talking, I was like, man, you know, I could so easily fill up every single one of these wishes with things to like, give me security or give me happiness or give me peace of some kind. And I'm like, shoot, maybe I need to be a little bit selfish. But then if you Mm -hmm. ask for something like world peace, that seems a little bit like, over the top, albeit or, or like... Or
0: more wishes. That's always <laughs> yeah. the one.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is the cliche uh, to ask for more wishes. Uh, but the reason I bring it up is when you look at this, it, it kind of does almost lend itself to this this magic lamp wishing genie sort of thing, which which I think is a really difficult concept to entertain because you would say, well, how can, how can Jesus, the person who's the son of God who came to earth um, to reconcile us to God to cover or to take our sins upon himself so that we can reenter into um right relationship with God, how could we equate him with some sort of magic genie? But when you see it, it, it very much looks like that. It very much looks like I mean it it literally says, whatever you ask, and I will do anything. Anything. Yeah. And that that's kind of hard to to look at. Um and I think some of the other verses that we've looked at so far lend themselves a little bit more to a different type of interpretation. But I think this one's a little bit more difficult to kind of wrap your head around, don't you think?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a hard one. It's a difficult one because it does seem so plain. And I do think most of us would say no, I don't see Jesus as a magic genie, or I don't see Jesus as a vending machine. The reality is, we betray that with the way we actually act in our mm-hmm. faith, or the way we expect things in our faith. Kate Bowler wrote uh, a book called "Everything Happens for a Reason" and other lies. I've loved great book. It's it's a memoir, but she talks about how she's a a professor at Duke Divinity School, and she talks about how she has spent her entire life studying the prosperity gospel, which is the idea of you know if you if you ask for something God will give it to you if you're faithful enough or if you just have enough faith or whatever. And and the sham that that is really, but she said even in my own life e- even though I knew that wasn't true, I still sort of expected that in certain instances. And she talks about how she received a terminal cancer diagnosis, stage 4, I believe, and um and dealing with that and and she said, "You know, even though I didn't believe the prosperity gospel, I still sort of expected, hey, this this shouldn't have happened to me or or God, you should you should take this away because of X Y Z. And so I think even though we would say, no, I don't believe Jesus is a magic genie or God's a vending machine or whatever, we do tend to still act as as though we believe that he is.
1: And even this early this afternoon, you and I were having a conversation about you know the future topics for later in season two and. Very much a conversation about well, they're the things that we believe, and they're the things that we practice. And while we would like to think that those things are one and the same, we find, much like what you said, they're not always the same. We would have, on one hand, a hard time saying that God is a vending machine who's willing to bend to our wishes as we need it, uh, but then at the other hand, say, "Well, God's not a magic genie." So, what is the, you know, what is the miscommunication somewhere in between that we've somehow uh, lost a grip on? So, I think it's interesting the the practical and the realistic beliefs and practices.
0: Yeah. And I think the part of it too is, is cultural, uh, you know, and then there are language issues, uh, in, in, in the midst of all of it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, we touched on this a few weeks ago, so I'm sure we'll touch on, on that again as we wrap it up. But honestly, you know, as we look at this week's episode, Sam, you did a bulk of the legwork for this. So, uh, love to, um, you know if this is the first time you've listened typically i do most of the talking and uh and then sam will, will add some things in but sam you've done the work here and and so we're going to turn it over to you and uh let you drive this ship or pilot this ship or i don't what's the expression i don't know whatever we're going to let you yeah. do it yeah. and uh then i'm going to chime in with thoughts as we as we go so uh man take us off and yeah. uh lead the way buddy
1: yeah so uh following the normal uh john pattern I almost said Johannine, but I don't want to mix that up with our gospel writer. Excellent. Um, yeah, you know we we like to talk about the the framework through which we read the scripture and how we understand scripture. And before that, I saw a really cool video by N.T. Wright um, this past week. It was something that I'd seen a long time ago, and he talks about this idea of reading scripture like you're looking through a window. So here in my office, you can't see me, but you're just gonna have to imagine with me. I live. I'm in this. Almost a cupboard of a room with a door and a little tiny window. A very,
0: very interior room.
1: Yeah, very, very. Um, so when it rains or it's sunny, I have no idea because I am protected.
0: I mean, it could be five o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the evening and you would have no idea in your office. It
1: is truth, absolute truth. And so for where, am I, where I am, I'm probably about 10 feet from the door and has one of those tall, narrow windows. And no matter how I move, you know, I might see a little edge of, you know, a lampshade, I might, if I go to the other way, I might see a tiny little piece of a fire alarm. But if I really want to see the full scope, I really have to get up right against the window. And once I get against the window, then this whole new reality begins to emerge. You know, think about it at your house. Pick a a place in your house and stand as far away from from the window as you can and look at it and see, well, what can I see? And then when you get closer, you're like, oh, goodness, there's a squirrel eating a peanut below the window. I would have never known that was there from where I was sitting before. And he says this is a lot like reading the Bible and doing Bible interpretation, um, and I think that's one of the problems as we look at some of these scriptures as they're posted on coffee cups or memes or whatever else on the internet is that we're standing, you know, twenty feet from these little windows and we're only seeing these little glimpses. And so what we have to do is get a lot closer to the windows to really see what's going on. Yeah. yeah
0: well, and if I could add to that, I, I actually had a discussion with a guy last week through email where he was asking a question about a particular verse, like why does this verse say this? And and so I just had to say like mm, the verses weren't placed there until much later. They weren't there in the original writing. These were letters. And -hmm. a lot of times if you just zoom out a little bit, or in in the case of your analogy, if you step closer to the window a little bit and look closer into the window, uh, then you can kind of see what's going on. And so for him, I just said, you know, if we look at the surrounding passages, we can kind of answer your question with what's going on here. So that that plays Mm -hmm. into the illustration that you just used.
1: Yeah. Um, And it's a really cool video, but I think it gets us to John's four questions or four ideas. Me, John, or four not, lessons. not the gospel writer, yeah. John. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we have to figure out a better way to yeah, for mark between the two. And we've heard this each week. They'll be in the show notes. They were in the show notes last week and each previous week. And the first thing whenever looking at scripture is you want to ask yourself, you know you what? Ask, ask the text, how does this verse apply to the life of Jesus or to the life of the author? If you haven't listened to our intro episode with Dr. Steele, he says something that I think Works really well here. If the author could not have intended it, and the audience could not have understood it, understood it, then it obviously cannot mean. Um, so, what would the text have looked like against the backdrop of Jesus, or what would have have looked like for the life of the author? The second one, do you see only one translation used? Often, one translation will lend itself a lot better to a, a particular meaning or a particular set of words, right? Not all translations are word-for-word translations because you can't do that between languages. Um, some of our modern languages you can, but think about something like Chinese or Japanese. You're not going to get a one-for-one translation. So sometimes translations will do a one-for-one. Some will do, you know, this is the idea trying to be expressed in my words. So is there only one translation being used? What did it mean to the original hearers is the third one. So much like the first one, what would it have meant to the author? What did the world of the author look like? What did this mean to the original hearers? Um, As John mentioned, these were a collection of letters that were eventually put together into our Bible. Um, Our Bible is a collection of individual books that have been collected. And very much we are reading over someone else's shoulder. Like these letters Mm -hmm. are not to us. They were to someone else. We are reading their mail over their shoulder as they're reading it. Mm -hmm. And then fourth interpret the Bible with the Bible. You know, if you see something in the Bible in one place and you see it, something else contradict it later on, then maybe you're reading it the wrong way. Um, We believe as Christians that the Bible is inspired by God. And so it is consistent with itself. And even if there are hard places where you're like, I'm not quite sure what it means, it doesn't mean that it's wrong or that it's out of place. It just means that we have to be willing to wrestle with it a little bit more. So when you see something like in John 14, read it, Look for other places, because I can guarantee you this shows up a couple more times in the book of John, this idea that we're talking about, and even in some of the other Gospels, um, and even similar ideas that you'll see in the writings of Paul elsewhere. So there are your four things to think about. You know, consider reading scriptures, looking through a window, and where you stand in relation to that window. And then how does it apply to the life of Jesus or the author? Do you only see one translation used? Compare translations. What did it mean to the original hearers? And interpret the Bible with the Bible. So having said that, let's look at the world of John real quick and what was going on. So we are at John 14. So we are a little bit later in the book. And by the time we get there, we are finally getting to an escalating part of John's gospel. So the ministry of Jesus, you know all of the big events of his life, the water to the wine, his public ministry, raising Lazarus from the dead, feeding the multitudes, all of these things have already happened. When we enter the narrative in John 14, Jesus and his 12 disciples are sharing a dinner. And as a show of ultimate humility, seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, even the one he knows he's that's gonna betray Jesus. This is where Jesus drops a big bombshell. And I, I can't underscore this idea of big bombshell enough. So Judas has already left, and Jesus tells all of his disciples he's gonna go. He's leaving, he's taken off. This announcement by Jesus isn't that he's headed to the cross. I mean, this is something that I think we would infer as the readers, but in the text, they didn't understand it. All, right, they didn't yeah. think, Jesus is headed to the cross. They don't think about this at all. All they hear is Jesus saying, I'm leaving. It's great that you gave up your lives and your livelihood, uh, but I have somewhere else to go and you can't come with me anymore. You can't follow me. You can't be my people anymore after this point. So, you know, we've heard, we'll hear this announcement a couple more times. Jesus will say it in a couple different ways. And the apostle or the disciples will ask some more questions, be like, Jesus, what do you mean you're going? What do you, what do you mean? We can't go. And I think the big thing about this whole scene is that we're meant to understand it being as a giant crisis for the disciples. Our author intends us to feel this moment of crisis alongside aside them, and not just a crisis, but a full abandonment in the way the disciples are lost for words and trying to wrap their heads around how Jesus could be going somewhere that they cannot follow. And also, Jesus not really telling them where he's going to go, right? He mm-hmm. says things like, I'm going to go be with the Father, I'm going to go to the Father, and they're like, but where is that? What does that mean? Um, you know, you could say, well... The temple is where God the Father would live. So is Jesus going to Jerusalem? But he's not telling them Jerusalem. They would know they're Jews. Like what? What? What is? What is going on? And then something very interesting happens after this. After this crisis moment, Jesus uses an "I am" statement. And to John's Gospel, not John Lemons, our our writer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To my knowledge, you don't have a gospel yet, John.
0: No. There are, and I, I will not either. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there are seven of these "I am" statements, and they're pretty important. Uh, these proclamations further our understanding of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus says, I am, um, it says something about who he is and what he's doing. And it's a progressive revelation about Jesus. So with each one, you get to see a little bit more, a new glimpse, a new understanding. And not only do they un- reveal Jesus, but they increasingly tie Jesus to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So in the Old Testament, in Exodus 3.14, just to give a good good example, when God reveals himself to Moses, he says, I am who I am. And this is what, in telling Moses, this is what you say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Thus, in Judaism, the I am statement is very unquestionably understood as the name for God. So when Jesus said this, it would very much be like, you know, seeing that University of Alabama football had lost to Vanderbilt or something. You would be like, what? Like, this would stick out. This would be a pretty important headline. This is not something the Jews or the people of the time would have easily been able to look over.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, too, that, so there's two things I'll add to this, and we'll just kind of dig a little bit deeper into, like, the Bible nerddom that we're getting into here. Mm-hmm. Um, for one, it could be possible that someone out there is is wondering, why did God choose this statement, I am, to describe himself? And a part of it goes with the name that is attributed to God. So the name Yahweh, which was very revered by, uh, by the Hebrew people, mm-hmm. the Jewish people, it is believed, at least in in circles where I have I have studied and read about it, essentially means he is. And so when you look at where God is is named, um, I think Hagar is the first one that names him. I mm-hmm, believe. She is. Yeah. But then you look at um, Abraham when Abraham, after the Lord provides a ram, in Genesis twenty-two, with the story of Isaac, Abraham calls him the Lord will provide, and it's the it's where we get the name Jehovah Jireh. Um, Jehovah is the same as Yahweh. It's just basically Latinized, I guess, basically. Um, but anyways, the it's the same Hebrew. And and one of the things that's really, um, I guess, important to keep in mind in addition to that, so, so the, the name literally means he is. Uh, so so why would God choose the name I am? It, it kind of goes with that. So that's one thing that, to keep in mind. The other thing is we've talked a lot about the exile on this mm-hmm. series. And one of the things that happened with the exile was the Jewish rabbis began to see that th- the longer that people were sort of away or, you know, as they adopt, adapted to the culture, because we talked about in, in Jeremiah, the command that was given to them was the command to settle down, to, you know, plant gardens, to marry off your daughters and to be a blessing there in, in Babylon, because if Babylon would prosper, then you two are going to prosper. So eventually they returned f- from that. But the Jewish rabbis understand like, uh oh, like the people have have kind of adapted to Greek culture and um and this is after some time but they realized like they cannot read the Hebrew they can't read the Hebrew they don't know the Hebrew and so two things happen one is they begin adding vowels to the Hebrew text because there was no text with vowels and and so you they had these they didn't want to alter the text itself so they would add little markings above and below the lines so that people would know when they looked at it how to read it because before it was just sort of understood or it was taught by tradition but nobody knew that anymore and so mm-hmm. if you had Let's say in the case of like your name, Sam, it would have been written in the Hebrew as just S-M. And mm-hmm. if I got to it and didn't know any context at all, I would have just been like, is this Sam? Is this Sim? Is this Sum? Some? S-O-M-E or S-U-M? Like, yeah, I, I don't know. And so they had to add these vowel points above and below the letters so that people like me who had just kind of ignored the language for forever <laughs> would know what the word was supposed to be. The other thing they did was they translated the Hebrew into the Greek. Uh, and so, and that became, that's, it's a term called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, the Septuagint literally means the 70. And it's just, that there were 70 people or so that, that worked on this translation. Mm-mm. And so the Greek translation of the Old Testament was sort of the, um, it's kind of like the message for us today, or maybe the New Living Translation for us today it was sort of like a, you know, for them, modern language version of, of their scriptures. And so when we look at, the New Testament, which was also written in Greek, and we see quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament, a lot of times the quotation is of the Greek Old Testament. And so when Jesus is making these I am statements, we know what words that the Hebrew rabbis or the Jewish rabbis equated with this word I am, which they didn't even dare to say in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And it was the Greek words ego, a my, I think is how you say it. And so when you get into the Greek New Testament and you see Jesus saying, I am, He's saying, ego am I. So like he's very much directly correlating to this I am uh, statement that they would have still sort of revered and they still would have like stayed away from even mm-hmm. in the Greek. Even though it wasn't Hebrew, they still would have stayed away from it in the Greek. And and the fact that you kind of have all these things tied together just kind of goes to show that like Jesus making these statements isn't it's not coincidental. It's very mm-hmm. intentional. And these words do still carry the same meaning, even though at this point in time, it's a different language than when it was originally said in Exodus chapter three. So just Mm -hmm. two bits of like little nerd trivia there.
1: Yeah. And if, I mean, just to continue on that, the Yahweh and talking about pointing, there is no pointing for Yahweh. That is one of those things that uh, so we the, don't
0: exactly really know how to say it. Yet. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the Masoretes, the one who did all the pointing, um, they were like, we're not quite sure how to do this. And even though we're uh, willing to turn the consonants SM into Sam and add a little A sound, they're like, we're not touching this word.
0: Yeah, um, they so revered the name of God that they were like, we're not even, even going to yeah, mess with it.
1: Yeah, and th- so, but that's a
0: good point, too. We're not really sure how it's supposed to be said because they never mm-hmm. said it, number one. And then, yeah, they didn't really include the vowel points.
1: Yeah, so in the Hebrew, it's just four consonants. Yeah. Um, also, if you happen to have any uh, Jewish friends, do not walk up to them and say Yahweh. Uh, the spoken pronunciation for this is always substituted for Adonai. So that's just right. that little piece of a uh, cultural sensitivity. But yeah, I think that's, that's a really cool thing. And looking back to verse 6, it's exactly that. So Jesus makes the I am statement. This would be a big deal. This is Vanderbilt blew out Alabama at home uh, for all of us modern readers. You would have recognized it. And then a little bit further in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. So Jesus is continuing this. I am, you know, God is always, Yahweh has always been known as the I am statement maker. Jesus makes it. And he says, the Father and I am one. If you know me, you know the Father. We are connected. We're together. So that is kind of what we're working on getting up to this point All of the things happened. Jesus had the foot washing. Judas Iscariot is going off, getting ready to betray Jesus. Jesus is telling the people, his disciples that are left, hey, you guys have been great, uh, but I have a show in Cleveland. I'll catch you all later. And they're like, wait, what? But we don't know where that is. Nice. Uh, (laughs) But really, if you look, at it's a moment of crisis. It is a bombshell. The disciples are, they've given up everything. They followed Jesus to the ends of the world um, through thick and thin. And Jesus says, I'm taking off. It is purely a abandonment issue. Um, It's heightened by the gospel writer at points having Jesus call them children. So there's definitely this parental children relationship going on in the middle of this crisis. In this crisis, the disciples are feeling like they're about to be orphaned. So after this abandonment language, this orphaning language, this is where Jesus' discourse begins. So he's made this announcement that things that are gonna happen, we know he's gonna be crucified, we know he's gonna die um yea for us for knowing the ending they did not know it so let's participate with them in this crisis so all of this we get to verse 13 and I will do whatever you ask in my name so the father may be glorified in the son you may ask anything in my name and I will do it and there's certainly a lot to look at here a lot of different things to consider as we press our faces up against that proverbial metaphorical window but for me as we look at it i think it really boils down to this key phrase this key idea in my name now I know as I say that, it's probably going to sound very old-timey, uh, something that we don't really say in our modern language, so let's let's talk about it. On the heels of this crisis, Jesus is beginning to comfort them. He's trying to say, you are not going to be orphaned, I am not leaving you, right? Jesus is saying, I am still for you, I am going to send a helper, so it is, you are not going to be orphaned, you are not going to be abandoned, so this is what's going on. This is part of Jesus' comfort piece, his comforting promise to the disciples, that he would hear and answer their prayers. And he tells them that anything they ask in his name would be granted to them. And, you know, much as we talked about earlier, it can easily sound that if you just e- add Jesus's name, that he's saying that if you just add my name to whatever you're saying, dear God, I would like a Porsche in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right. That's that's kind of what it sounds like. The magic that we would be, genie. Yeah, the magic genie um, with unlimited wishes. That if we just add his name, we're invoking some sort of magic power or a prayer booster if you will. Um, But on a more serious note, if we take this passage to the end of that literal understanding, right, if people are taking a very literal approach to this text, if we continue out that thought process, it's either that we can keep Jesus in a lamp until we need to get something, right, that's one, if you teased it out, or that God doesn't really listen to mere humans, but only listens to Jesus. Therefore, if we attach Jesus's name to our prayers, it's more likely to get God's attention, right? Doesn't that make sense that on one end, either You know, we can keep Jesus until we need him or that God's really not interested to us. Jesus has to be a middle middle name. You're saying
0: the logical conclusion of that, the the next step of that. If you tease it out. Right. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: But I'm also saying, and we've had a lot of caveats at different points, that doesn't mean to to drop Jesus's name from your prayers. That's something that I incorporated into my prayer life years and years ago to always say in the name of Jesus, we pray. Um, So don't stop saying that. I'm not saying stop doing that, that it's not important, that we shouldn't stop attaching it because there is a serious power in the name of Jesus. But the danger is that if if we reduce our prayers and our relationships and our walk with God um, just to this, if we reduce our prayers and our worship to just adding the name of Jesus, hoping that something's super or super magical, it kind of almost sounds like a God-sized name dropping, Mm. right? I accidentally did that the other week without meaning to. Um, It'd just be like, yo, God, I said, Jesus, help me out. Mm-hmm. But you know, Jesus is not promising to be a personal vending machine. He used that earlier. I really, I really like that idea of the vending machine. But rather, he is encouraging a faithfulness in prayer, and that's something that we have to really think about. It. It's not a vending. It's it's encouraging a faithfulness. He's encouraging us to know that he will be faithful to us in our prayers. So this, in the name of phrase, of course, is not limited to religious speech. Um, But it's also part of our English language, we've used it a lot of different ways, we just may not use it much nowadays. And if you do a deep study and you think about it, even in practical uses, it kind of carries this meaning or idea of by the authority of, or for the sake of, or on behalf of. So for this reason, if you see this phrase, you can normally replace it with, usually replace in the name of, with on behalf of, or as a representative of. Right, this makes sense. Much like when Jesus says to pray in my name, he means that if we pray, that when we do this, we pray in his authority, like in his likeness. When our requests made in the name of Jesus, further the purposes and kingdom, he's saying that God will act on our behalf. And in the end, the father will be glorified in the son. A good example of such a prayer like this um, is when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. Um, and I can never spell this word right. I realized while I was thinking, this podcast out today. Mm -hmm. But Jesus said the the exact same thing, not my will, but your will be done. Right. So he's removing himself and he's saying, I want to do something in accordance with your plan, God, the father. Jesus is panicked. You know, he's freaking out as much as we can say he can freak out for being God incarnate. But he says, you know, God, not what I want to do, but I want to do things according to you. Um, I remember you asking me a couple of weeks ago, John, what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I distinctly remember, and I can't remember if I mentioned it, in the podcast that I wanted to be a detective. So whatever brought me to that, I went and found my bathrobe and a hat and some glasses and I walked downstairs and my parents were like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm preparing to be a detective. And they just thought it was funny. And John, you have kids, so you probably have uh, kid memories of them doing something like that. But I think it was largely from watching a lot of cartoons and shows that I was like, oh, I I think this is what I want to do. And you would see cartoons of the police showing up at Daffy Duck's house or Elmore Fudd's house, and saying something like, "Open up the door in the name of the law," right? Mm-hmm. In the mm-hmm. name of the law, and you don't really think about it when watching the cartoon or the events of the cartoon. But really, the cartoon officer isn't saying, "Open the door for me." The goofy cartoon character is saying, "In the name of the law, I'm a representative of the law. Open it." He's saying, "I'm re- representing the law in an official capacity, so open the door because you've been hunting rabbits." I, you know, run, so running through all of these ideas that I mentioned before, representing on behalf of, is the same basic idea that when someone says, in my name, you're acting as a representative of something or someone else. It's it's an expression or acting in accordance with their wishes or request, um, their authority, their interests. And in the case of Jesus, his character especially, Jesus's identity, his character, his motive, his desires, his interests. Um, here are a couple of big ones, His purposes, his mission being the mission of God. And these become the basis for your prayer. So when you pray in the name of Jesus, you are praying according to his identity, his character, his motives, his desires, his interests, his purpose. So much like when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's saying, Not my will, but I want to pray according to your will and what you want done on your behalf.
0: yeah, that's good. And I think too, there's a sense of, you know, sometimes we will see in a movie where someone will say, you know, hey, go over to so and so's place. Tell him I sent you, right? Or, mm-hmm. or you know, you might in your job, you know, have someone that has a membership somewhere that you really want to you you want to have an in for for some reason, and you'll you'll name drop. You'll you'll say, hey, you know, Sam Maxwell told me to call you, right? Hmm. And, and that way, hopefully, just that dropping that name allows for there to be a little bit of a. um it lowers barriers. It you know mm-hmm. maybe allows for for uh, you know some progress to be made or whatever. I think the other part of it too that maybe touches on something you mentioned earlier with with Jesus said I won't leave you as orphans. A name is is a somewhat a reference to family as well. So you know because you you share your family name you carry your family name,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so it's it's it carries that sense as well as being a a member of the family of Jesus and the family mm-hmm. of of God. And so I think that's a powerful clue into what Jesus is saying here as well.
1: Yeah. um, And I think that's a good thing that you mentioned with the family. And I hadn't even thought about that. You know, a lot of folks can take a lot of pride in their family name, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, you'll see it callously sometimes in old timey movies, but they will be like, you're dishonoring the family name. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think there is a certain amount of like wanting to make the people in your family proud, knowing that you're carrying a piece of them with you because you're carrying their name, you know, or if you've been at a big company. They'll say, look, you know, you're going to this event, you're going to this convention. Remember that you're not just there representing yourself, but you're representing the company too. So anything that you do will be on half of the company, even if you're not in official capacity, because they will see you as a reflection of the company. And I think that's the exact thing here, whether it's your name or you're working on behalf of your company. When Jesus says, in my name, you say, I'm going in the name of Jesus. Even if you're not officially in that capacity, people are going to see you as a reflection of Jesus. Or what Jesus was doing, if you were acting inconsistent, they'll say, well, we see it as a reflection against this. And of course, as we you know, as we continue thinking about this, when we talk about praying in his name for anything, it means that we're not asking for things that aren't consistent with Jesus's nature, right? We can't expect those things because they're not consistent with Christ. It says, whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may glorify, you may, be, uh, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So it's the, the anything and the in my name go together. A good example of this, a couple of years ago, I don't remember if you saw the show. I think I watched it just out of curiosity. Um, on TLC, there was one of those, like, the rich pastors of megachurches, whatever else. Did you see that?
0: Yes. Well, I mean, I, I know what you're talking <laughs> about. Yeah. yeah.
1: And much like you talked about earlier with the the health and wealth gospel, some of these guys, you just see them and they'll have commercials and they'll say, oh, well, you know, we need to pray for us to have a new private jet. Um, Or we need to pray for a new Lamborghini because our old Lamborghini isn't carrying the gospel message of Jesus effectively enough. So when we're talking about in the name of Jesus and having anything, I don't think Jesus is saying, go pray for a private airplane so that you can go witness. I I don't think, I think that that becomes a little bit of a stretch, but I think we should know that too, right?
0: yeah absolutely well again get get back to how does this apply to the life of Jesus because a lot of times we'll, we'll even we'll even say use prestige so we'll say God if you give me this position I'll do so many great things for your name if you if I can get elected to this or if I can be the head of my company or whatever like then I can really bless your name and I can bless people and it will advance the kingdom and this that and the other so it's really the same prayer you know it's not asking for a Lamborghini but it's really asking for something in exchange for you know, If if you do this for me, God, then I'll do all these great things for you. And how does that apply to the life of Jesus? Mm -hmm. We're gonna look at this and say, I will do anything that you ask if you ask in my name. Well, let's look at Jesus who said he was homeless, owned literally nothing but like the clothes that he wore on his back, stayed in other people's homes, ate in other people's homes all the time. I'm not saying go live like that because it's I it would be I would freak out if Mm -hmm. I if I didn't know like where I was gonna sleep or where I was gonna eat. But if we're gonna say like doing great things for the kingdom well like Jesus did the greatest things for the kingdom and didn't have any of that stuff didn't have the titles didn't have the possessions so you have to look at it with that caveat in mind and and it you know when you when you do that you you, you can't take it to these extremes that you see with the lamborghinis and the jets and the bentleys and or even the you know the the little things that you and I ask for because I don't think we'll ask for bentleys I think we'll we'll understand that that's a little extreme, but you know, we might say like I did earlier, like, well, my life would be so much easier if like, I just didn't have to worry about student debt or whatever. And like, it it, it may be, but that doesn't necessarily equal like me being able to do greater things for the kingdom. Um, same thing Mm -hmm. with, with prestige or, you know, we we talked earlier uh, a few episodes ago about me getting uh, my doctorate, um, starting that in a few months. I mean, that doesn't mean like I'm going to necessarily do, do greater things. Now, That doesn't mean don't do that, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think it, you know, we all have a kind of a tendency where we will carry these things and there's certain lines we won't cross. And then when people cross the lines that we draw for ourselves, we're like, well, how dare them? But I think we're all, we all tend to equate like, well, if I just had something, you know, and for for all of us, that something is different Then I could do so many great things for God. And that's just not, just not the case. And Mm -hmm. so then when that something is the thing that we ask for, it's, that's where you begin to take this passage out of, out of
1: context. Mm-hmm. And Something I was reflecting on, I, I got to it a little bit in talking about the wishes, is when we go to God in prayer for something, I think we have to face the reality that we ourselves as flawed, sinful people are going and asking for something on behalf of the one whose name we bear, right? And that being Jesus Christ. And so there's going to be a natural conflict between our egos and our desires and our self-centered needs. So I think that's the importance of realizing, like, what am I bringing to the prayer? Am I bringing my things to the prayer? Or am I bringing the things of God and Jesus to the prayer? Or am I praying for the things that are going to further God's kingdom? Am I praying for things that will see God's kingdom come and be realized on earth in this place? Am I praying for things that are going to bless somebody? So I think in this, our request has to be an expression of the joint will uh, when we pray in the name of Jesus, according to his name, according to his purposes. Yet when we ask That means that it's not just our tiny self or egotistical self that's asking, it's ourselves joining in Christ in his mission. It's in what Jesus is already doing. And I think that's when we finally see the, in the name of Jesus finally coming to fruition. Looking back at the disciples, Jesus is saying that I'm not gonna be away from you, but you can be assured that when you pray according to my person bearing me upon yourself, in a way, um, that you will get whatever you ask for, that you will have the power from the Father, which I have had, that you will also have with you. And I think there's another thing that's in here that's kind of a part of the anything, and it's we've talked about it a little bit more implicitly here, that there's the in my name according to Jesus, and there's also the anything. So I think the anything, just to explicitly put it, is according to the will, right? So if you are, you know, if you are a father, right, John, you are a father, you are not going to ask for anything that is going to damage or harm your family, right? You're going to ask things that are in, I guess, within the realm of loving your family, because that's who you are, and that's what you want, and that's what you desire, right? So you wouldn't be asking for anything that would hurt your family. So I think that's what Jesus is saying, is that if you've taken on the name of Jesus and who he is, you're not gonna ask for anything outside of what Jesus would ask for or outside of what Jesus would want. So anything becomes anything within that sphere of according to who Jesus is and his purposes and his desires and his mission and his wants and his loves and his cares. So you know anything may seem like a giant scope, but I think it's really limited, again, to talking about what does it mean to speak on behalf of Jesus or to pray on behalf of Jesus or in the authority of Jesus for X, Y, or Z. And then lastly, I think there's one other real key component that we have to think about. So I mentioned that there is this, Jesus is going, there's ourselves joining with Christ, and we have to surrender ourselves to be in partnership with Jesus and his desires and his wants according to his will, through which we will receive anything according to his will. But one of the other big parts is that Jesus says later, I'm with the Father and I'm with you as well. So it's no long, it doesn't always stay this you have to fight your ego and your sinfulness to take on Christ. But I think in taking in Christ, you become more and more like Christ. And you see this throughout the Bible. So that the more and more you engage and the more and more you seek to be like Christ, the more and more you become like Christ. So the more and more you give yourself over to loving people who you don't want to love, you become more Christ-like because you're living in a countercultural, cultural counter-life way in which Christ would live. And I think there are a couple of areas here in these books Give us a couple of ideas of what it looks like as you take Jesus upon yourself and he begins to form you in his image. Because really, this is what sanctification looks like. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about that it is not the completion of the process, but it is the beginning of the process of becoming like Christ. Um, Emil Bruner said that Jesus is the true human. So he is the only true human. He is the only right human. And that all of us, having fallen or been corrupted by sin, are endeavoring to be like a true human. So as long as we are not like Christ, we don't exhibit true humanity because we are less than that. And so I think even here in a couple of chapters in John, I think Jesus exhibits a couple of things or points to a couple of things. And I think these are really consistent with the character of Jesus. And this isn't a be all end all list. This is just a couple of things that I found. But in John 13, 14, right, this is Jesus being humble. Like when was the last time you had someone say, look, I just really want to come and wash your feet and lower myself to do this activity for you, right? We also see ideas of service in John thirteen thirty four. Jesus says, "Love as I have loved you." There's this also idea of unity in John fourteen, obedience to Christ, right? Surrendering your will to the will of Christ, and then also in fourteen twenty seven, where Jesus says to have peace to not be worried about anything. So I think as we surrender ourselves to Christ, we give ourselves over to Christ. We seek to be in will or in the will and unity of Christ for the things that he is after. I think we begin to find these things take form and shape. Like I said, this isn't an exhaustive list, but it's a lifetime endeavor to surrender our lives to become more like the true human in Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, all well said, man. And I think, um, you know, one thing that I think we miss sometimes when we look at the Bible is the setting and in the, in the placement of where, where everything is happening. So it's rare in the Bible that you're going to have multiple chapters span one night. But in this case, they do. Uh, so you mm-hmm. have between John 13 and I think all the way through 17. Well, on, through the crucifixion, it's all spanning one night. Mm-hmm. Um, but through 17, I think 17 is where he gives, where he he prays for the unity of his followers. Mm-hmm. And all of that is happening. It's It's the Last Supper. And then it's the Garden of Gethsemane. So um, so all these things are happening together. The things that you just referenced are all happening together. They're not meant to be read separately. It's mm-hmm. all, I mean, it's a it's a zoom in, like, from 30,000 feet to, like, three feet on the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And um, I think, too, like, what, what you see developing in John 14, he spends a lot of time early on talking about, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, um, and talking just about the the harmony that exists between jesus and the father and then you see in john 17 where jesus is praying for his followers and he's praying that they would be united that that as his followers that we would be sort of, of of one heart and mind and we're totally not if i mean you don't have to look very far to see that among any churches but that is jesus's prayer and when you look into john 15 um that is where you have the famous vine and branches passage and Jesus mm-hmm. says, remain in me and I will remain in you. So it's important to keep in mind, he says that. And as Sam said earlier, he's saying all this that we're talking about in John 14, knowing that he's about to depart. So so there's there's a lot going on here that his disciples are probably not able to understand at the moment and that we can understand looking back in the context of what's going on. But understanding the, the parallels that Jesus is drawing between him and the Father uh, being in one another in terms of being in harmony with one another and us being in Jesus, remaining in Jesus, meaning staying connected to Jesus, staying in harmony with Jesus and the will of Jesus and the will of the Father through Jesus also leads into this idea of whatever you ask for in my name. You know, it's really just about the harmony and it's really about the connection. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you do that, as Sam said, you're not, you're you're not going to under, you're not going to ask for things like a Bentley or a Lamborghini or a position or prestige or whatever, because at that point, it's, it's, you're asking for the will of the Father. We talked a few weeks ago about a similar verse to this. I think it is in John 15, I think, Sam.
1: Yeah, I think it's 15.
0: Yeah, where he says something similar, you know, ask for anything. And, you know, when we talk about applying this to the life of Jesus or the life of the followers, we said then, you know, is there a place in the Gospels where Jesus asks for something and does not get it? Yeah, it's the Garden of Gethsemane, mm-hmm. which you mentioned. So um, it cannot mean, ask for literally anything. And I remember saying at the time, whatever it does mean, we know what it cannot mean and it cannot mean that. And then I think Mm -hmm. when you start to bring in like other passages to interpret the Bible with the Bible, there are a number of ways you can, you can do that with this. So there's, there's Jesus saying, but it's funny. He says in Matthew chapter five, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke's version of that just says, blessed are the poor. Um, some people suspect that that Matthew wrote poor in spirit because he was writing to a rich community. We don't know that for <laughs> sure. Um, it could have been two totally different contexts. And you know, Jesus preached the same message in in two different places. Um, we do that from time to time. Us preachers will sometimes do that.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: um, I, what what I'm getting at with that is, you know, you have that there. You have store up treasures in heaven. Jesus talks about. You know, well, what does that mean? Um, you have a place in. I think it's in one of his Corinthian letters where Paul talks about. I would rather, for those of you who are single, I would rather you remain as you are, um, where he talks about widows remaining s- single, not getting remarried. Like, so, so why, why would Paul want that? Is it because singleness is better? Um, no, it's because, and, in, in he goes on to explain, because you don't have some of the other, you know, if, if, if you were to get married, well, now you have an obligation to, to care for that, that other member now of your family. Um, which is a great thing, but it also is something that can distract you from your relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Same thing, you know, why would, why would Jesus say, bless or the poor? And I think about, like, you know, the things that I have in my life that are things that I get attached to. I, I have a little bit of an obsessive, obsessive personality to the, to the point where, like, if I'm streaming a show, I, that's pretty much what I do. <laughs> like, when I have time, like, I'm like, I'm going to go watch my show now. Um, and so, like, I do that, or if I get, you know— just anything that's new kind of in my life that's just like that just becomes what I what I'm devoted to. So why would Jesus, who was homeless, who had nothing, who was fully devoted to the Father, say, Blessed are you if you're poor? It's not that you're like a better person, but like mm-hmm. you have the ability to to really just entirely focus your on your relationship with God and on following him and being in harmony with him because you don't have any other distractions or obligations, even as good as those obligations might be. And um I think there's something to that. There's something to what, what Paul is saying. As, as far as, you know, if you're single, remain as you are. He's not saying that that that, that you're better. It just means like I mean, concentrate on your relationship with God because you don't have other obligations or distractions. Mm-hmm. And so I think that goes in with all of this as well. And so then you get into like, well, what does he mean by, you know, I think that kind of encapsulates being in in the name, right? And then I think when you get into like ask for anything, um, the, the closer you are to doing that, I think the more you are to the heartbeat of who God is and what God is is about. And then you get away from like, oh, well, I need this thing in order to fulfill that because you know that you don't need that thing. You're not relying on that thing. You don't, you know, again, the the, the less obligations you seem to have, the more devoted you are to, to who um, God is and God wants you to be. And then I think another application to that is, you know, we have to remember like this life and here and now isn't the end all be all. So they're we do believe that there is going to come a time when all these things will be renewed and there will come a life, an eternal life that we have, that this life is only a shadow of, which means think about all the things that you want to do now or you do now and take those to the next level. And that's what eternal life is going to be like. I read a great article from J.D. Greer, who's a pastor in North Carolina. He's also the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he talks about this. He he says, we we need to... Change our attitudes from YOLO, you only live once, to um, he called it YALF. I think you (laughs) actually live forever is is what he called it. And he's talking about he said he you know one of the things he talks about in there is like I want to climb Mount Everest at some point. And my wife has told me like you're not going to get to do that until like the kids are out of the house and we no longer have an obligation to them. And he said by that point like I probably won't have the you know physical ability to to climb Everest. And and then he's he says you know so like I believe that like in the renewed Earth and, and in my renewed body and my renewed life, like I'll have the oppor- opportunity to do that, and Everest then will be even better than it is now because it's only a shadow of of what the the reality that God intended for it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's that sense of it as well that we may ask for something now and not get it now, but that doesn't mean we're not going to get it. That that could also mean that there's a fuller, more beautiful version of it that we will get it in our eternal life with God, but our eternal life with God depends on us giving our lives to God now. So it could also mean that there is an, you know, when we offer prayers that we feel like are unanswered, it may be that the answer is coming in a more greater sense than we could possibly even imagine here and now.
1: Mm-hmm. Keeping that, you know, the eternal perspective, I think is key, even when looking at this verse, right? I, I think sometimes we get sucked in this idea that like, oh, yeah, it's Easter, it's great, and now we can go do summer. Mm-hmm. But the reality for Christians and the reality for the disciples is that even though Jesus was dying, like that wasn't the end of the story. Like Jesus was going to fulfill it. He was what he intended to do by coming to earth, but his mission hadn't ended. His mission wasn't coming to a stop, right? He had recruited the disciples to join him and participate with him and be the vanguard, right? The first foray into participating with God on his mission. So when Jesus says, I'm going, he's not saying, well, go back to your farms and your people and go play Game Boy or, you know, go, do something. He's saying like, I'm leaving and you are going to continue this journey that you've already started with me. And you can be assured that on this journey, you're not going to be alone and that I will still be with you. And God, you know, God, the father will send another helper to be with you and take care of you because this isn't the end. The really good stuff is still coming. You know, it's almost like a, a bad movie where we see Easter and then the last 10 minutes of the movie or Jesus coming back ascending and then it rolls credits, right? That's, that's not what it is. It's the eternal perspective, right? We are, we are going for the eternal end game. And I think that's what you see here is Jesus saying, I will be with you as we continue on toward this end goal. You don't have yeah. to be worried; You are not abandoned. I will be with you all the way at all times. Um, and with
0: the call to that remain in me as yeah. I remain in you. And as I remain in the father, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good words, man. Thanks.
0: I think it was a, it was a good show. Hopefully our, our listeners feel that as well. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you got that, that we're uh, not addressing before we go?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if you've not really read this section, go back and read, you know, chapters 13 through 17. Um, you know, it's a really, I think, great in-depth picture of the last hours of Jesus and all of his words and really lays out a solid format of what it means to give yourself to Christ and participate with Christ on mission. Um, and I think there's also something to be said about the realness of the disciples. You know, from our perspective in time, most of these people are on stained glasses in churches and we're like, oh, they were so great and things were so wonderful for them. But I think this really humanizes the disciples and helps us kind of stand in place with them. Even though the letter's not to us or about us, we can still stand in there and be like, I know what it's like to be frustrated and feel like, you know, God has left me. But this is a reminder that God has not left me, that God is still here and God is still for me.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, man. That's a good note to end on, I think. And um, as we are wrapping up, uh, I'll just say next week, we'll be back with our last episode in this series, at least for now. Uh, And we're going to look at Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 28. Now, this is a passage that we did not cover in the summer in which we did this study, Sam. So this will be new material for us and for our listeners. Um, For anybody who went through that study with us two summers ago, they will not have heard this before. And this is one that um, I, I added because it has come up recently, and things that I've seen online. It's the story of where Jesus is with his disciples, and um, he is approached by one version says a Canaanite woman, another version says a Syrophoenician woman. Same thing, but she's calling out after Jesus. She's not Jewish, and Jesus says it is not good for the, uh, it is not good to take the bread from the children and toss it to the dogs. And so he calls this woman a dog, and she. You know, offers something back to that. Mm-hmm. So we're going to look at that and see what, what exactly is going on here. Why is Jesus call a woman a dog? Does the woman have something to teach Jesus here? Is Jesus not fully comprehending his his calling or his, uh, his the mantle given to him by God with this? Because that's what a lot of people will say. And so we'll look at that and decide, um, you know, w- what's a proper approach to take to that particular passage. Until then, we are so glad you're you listened with us today. And I'm going to turn this over to Sam to close us out and to land our plane today, Sam. So why, mm-hmm. don't you, uh, why don't you close us out?
1: Yeah, well, thank you everyone for joining. We're so excited. We'll be back next week, as John mentioned. Uh, between now and then, check out our website. Uh, send us some scripture passages or questions that you might have that we could answer in our final episode. Thank you to John. Uh, make sure to, all of you, make sure to like, share, rate, and review. I think we're, what are we up to now? 12, 13, five stars?
0: 13, last time I checked. So.
1: Yeah. I, somebody told me yesterday
0: they were going to try to review it or rate it, and they, but they, they, mm-hmm. they, they were like, I can't guarantee that I can figure out how to do it. So, we'll ah, see.
1: Slackers. Anyway, yeah, for- special thanks to Ellen for doing our logo and Patrick for killing it every week, doing our audio stuff on the background and we are looking forward to seeing you in another week. Trying to walk into my office. <laughs> Fantastic. So I had I had Emery and Mindy and someone else came by and like stared at me through the window. Nice. Nice. Mm-hmm.